0: Today, we're going to be talking about irony, which can be challenging to define. It's the kind of thing where you know it when you see it, you know it when you hear it. Uh, one type of irony is when you expect a certain set of events to happen, but something else very different happens. Uh, let me give you a few examples. Here's a picture of a sign that says, We are committed to excellence. <laughs> you, you would assume that if they're seriously committed to excellence, might spell the words correctly on the sign. Uh, another example is this picture. We have a sign that says, nothing is written in stone. You might expect that to not be written in stone, right? And one final picture is this sign that says, welcome to colorful Colorado. <laughs> Has, any, is enough said? Has anybody taken a picture in front of the sign? Huh? You maybe would think the sign would be have some color to it. Maybe the background would have some color. You had to drive a few miles west to get to the color and the beauty. Uh, in the text that we're looking at this morning, we are going to see several ironies. And the purpose of these ironies is not to make us laugh and amuse us, as was the purpose of these. Uh, the purpose of these ironies is instead to cause us to sort of stand back and stand amazed at what God has done for us in Christ. And that is actually my hope and my prayer for us this morning. I hope that as a result of our time together, we would stand in wonder at what God has done for us in Christ. So if you would please turn in your Bibles to Mark 15, I'm going to ask you to please stand in honor of the reading of God's word. I'm going to read verses 6 through 20, and this is the very inspired word of God. Now at the feast, he used to release for them one prisoner for whom they asked. And among the rebels in prison who had committed murder and insurrection, there was a man called Barabbas. And the crowd came up and began to ask Pilate to do as he usually did for them. And he answered them, saying, Do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? For he perceived that it was out of envy that the chief priests had delivered him up. But the chief priests stirred up the crowd to have him release for them Barabbas instead. And Pilate again said to them, Then what shall I do with the man you call the king of the Jews? And they cried out again, crucify him. And Pilate said to them, why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, crucify him. So Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, released for them Barabbas. And having scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. And the soldiers led him away inside the palace, that is the governor's headquarters. And they called together the whole battalion. And they clothed him in a purple cloak. And twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on him. And they began to salute him, Hail, King of the Jews! And they were striking his head with a reed and spitting on him and kneeling down in homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the purple cloak and put his own clothes on him, and they led him out to crucify him. Let's pray. Father, I lift up our time together as we continue in this section of Mark where we look at the death of Jesus and the cross. I pray that our familiarity with this story would not prevent us from standing in awe and wonder at at the mystery and the glory of what you've done for us in Christ and all you've done for us in Christ. We pray it in his name. Amen. You may be seated. So I want to point out several ironies or mysteries uh, from our text. And the first one is this. Jesus is found guilty for claiming to be the king when he is, in fact, the king. This is the main crime that they bring uh, regarding Jesus. This is what gets him crucified. His claim to be the king. We, we saw where he, he was asked by the chief priests, straightforward. Are you the Christ? Are you the Son of God? And he says, I am. And they said, well, what else do we need? What further charge do we need? We have what we need. And so they take him to Rome to Pilate. And the charge that they bring is the king of the Jews. He claims to be the king of the Jews, which would be consistent with the claim to be the Christ, the claim to be the Son of God, but they've sort of packaged it in a way that Rome and Pilate will care more about. Rome and, and Rome and Pilate don't really care if he claims to be the Christ or the Son of God. They do care, potentially, if he claims to be a king. And so this claim to be the Christ, the Son of God, is consistent with claiming to be the king. So that's the charge that they bring. We see this phrase, King of the Jews, six times in Mark 15, and so that should be an indicator to us. This is important. It's an important phrase. You see a phrase six times in one chapter, that lets you know this is important. So let's look at each of those references. First of all, Mark 15, verse 2. Pilate asks, Are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus answered him, You have said so. In other words, this is Jesus' way of saying, Yes, I am, uh, but it's a different kind of king than what you think of. You know, I'm, a, I'm a, a king from a different kind of kingdom. I'm ushering in a different kind of Of kingdom. And uh, we we see this from John's gospel, for example, where Jesus says, My kingdom is not of this world. Look at Mark 15, verse 9. Pilate answered them, saying, Do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? And then look at verse 12. Then what shall I do with the man you call the king of the Jews? Why does Pilate reference Jesus as the king of the Jews? Because that's the charge that the religious leaders have brought. We also see the Roman soldiers mocking Jesus for this claim that he makes. Look at Mark 15, verses 17 through 19. And they clothed him in a purple cloak and twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on him and they began to salute him, Hail, King of the Jews. And they were striking his head with a reed and spitting on him and kneeling down in homage to him. So they mock him in this purple robe. Why? uh, Because of this claim to be the king. They put this kingly royal robe robe on him. And it says they put this crown of thorns on his head. Now we often picture that as being the thorns going into his head to inflict pain and to cause blood. Uh, the reality is, I think the, the thorns are going out so that it looks like the, the crown that the Caesar would wear. That's, the, that's what they're doing. They're mocking him. Like, you claim to be a Caesar. You claim to be a king. So they put this Caesar-like crown on his head with the thorns going out. And instead of saying, Hail, Caesar, they say, Hail, king of the Jews. Notice in verse 19 it says, they were spitting on him and kneeling down in homage to him. I think that's an incredible irony there, verse 19. They're spitting on him on one hand and they're kneeling down before him on the other hand. Of course, they're kneeling down in mockery. Uh, you know, if, he's re- if he claims to be the king, they're kind of mocking him, kneeling down like you would before a king. And, and consider the, the irony of the fact that Philippians 2 says, one day every knee is going to bow before King Jesus. So one day, these very men who are bowing the knee before him in mockery will actually bow the knee before him recognizing he is the king. Look at Mark 15, verse 26. And the inscription of the charge against him read, the king of the Jews. John tells us it was written three times in three different languages. Why? It was a public spectacle. They wanted to make a public statement. And the religious leaders, John tells us, go to Jesus and say, will you please change the sign to say something more like, he claimed to be the king of the Jews? It's offensive to us that it actually says the king of the Jews. And Pilate says, what I've written, I've written. And so Jesus dies under a sign that says the king of the Jews, when in fact he is. I hope you see the irony here. Look at Mark 15, verses 31 to 32. So also the chief priests with the scribes mocked him to one another, saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. In other words, if he were to come down from the cross, we would believe. We don't believe that the King of kings would be in this situation hanging, cursed by God, on a tree. But if he were to come down, then we might see and believe. See the irony? Jesus will come down on his terms three days later. He will rise again, and many will see, and many will believe. Here's the point. Jesus is crucified for making the claim that he's the king of kings. And when a person makes that kind of claim, you have to do something with it. You can't remain neutral toward a person who makes this kind of claim. I was trying to think of another kind of modern-day example of something or someone who is polarizing, you can't just sort of be neutral about. And the first person that came to my mind the past week or two is Vladimir Putin. I'm almost shocked at how much unity there is around this consensus that he's, he's evil and his actions are evil. Virtually everybody seems to think this, and, and by the way, rightly so. Uh, I read where a professional German orchestra fired its conductor because of his support for Putin. World Taekwondo stripped Putin of his black belt. He's been suspended as the honorary president and ambassador of the International Judo Federation. He's apparently very involved in martial arts. In fact, he wrote a book. And I looked at it on Amazon, curious, and it had 18 reviews, which kind of shocked me. Uh, FIFA soccer and European soccer have suspended Russian teams and Russian clubs from playing. I just saw where Netflix is canceling their programming. And I just saw, I think I read this morning, where Visa and MasterCard are canceling their business. I mean, everybody's... Lining up on one of two sides. And there's only one person I know of, uh, Xi Jinping, who's you know, siding with, with, with Putin. And everybody, the whole world seems to be in agreement about this evil. And rightly so. And I just want to say, in a similar kind of way, when you have a person that makes the claim that Jesus is making, it, it, it's all or nothing. You have to take a position. There's no neutrality. Neutrality doesn't make sense. If somebody says, I am the Christ, the one the Old Testament was pointing forward to, I am the Son of God, I am the King of Kings, not just the King of the Jews, but the King of Kings, it is not a rational option to go, you know, he kind of seems like a nice guy who taught some nice things. He doesn't leave you with that option. You have to take a position. You either bow down before him as the king, or you get as far away from him as possible because he's evil. You just can't remain neutral. Pilate tries to remain neutral. Pilate literally washes his hands symbolically like this. His blood's on you, not on me. But of course, Pilate goes down in history as the one under whom Jesus suffered and died, suffered under Pontius Pilate, according to the Apostles Creed. And this is a good reminder. You can't wash your hands of Jesus. You have to make a decision. He made the claim. He was the king of kings. He died because of the claim for being the king of kings. And so the question for you is, how will you respond? What will be your response? What will you do? Pilate asks the question in Mark 15, 12, what shall I do with the man? And that is the question for us this morning. What will you do with the man? Will you bow down before him, recognizing he is the king as he claims to be? Or will you run away and call him evil? There is no middle option. Second Irony or mystery that we see here. Jesus is innocent, but He dies like a criminal in the place of a criminal who goes free. One of the main points of this account in Mark and the other Gospels is to demonstrate the innocence of Jesus. He's innocent. And one of the key evidences that He's innocent, ironically, is Pilate's verdict. Pilate thinks he's innocent. Pilate says so much. Look at verse 14. What evil has he done? Verse 10, Pilate recognizes their their ulterior motives. He knows something's fishy. He's looking for a way to release Jesus, and he gets it in verses 8 and 9. Look at verses 8 and 9 with me. And the crowd came up and began to ask Pilate to do as he usually did for them. And he answered them saying, Do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? Pilate wants to release Jesus. There's a tradition where they release a prisoner during the festival. So the crowd comes up and says, hey, remember that tradition we have where you release someone? Are you going to do that? And Pilate's like, oh, yeah, this is a win-win. I don't really want to crucify this guy. He seems innocent. And I get the sense that the religious leaders have some ulterior motive. I want to release him. And now the crowd is asking me to release somebody. So here's my perfect opportunity. So Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, released for them Barabbas, and having scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. Now one of the key questions that typically comes up is, how did this crowd that went from Palm Sunday saying, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, one week later go to shouting, crucify him? And, And one of the answers is, I've heard a lot of sermons preached on the fickleness of the crowd. One of, the, one of the answers is, look, Jerusalem swelled with thousands upon thousands upon thousands of people during the festival. And the likelihood that these two crowds are made up of different people is very great. Right? And, and we get the sense that this second crowd is really initiated by the religious leaders. They're the ones who seem to be initiating this gathering on this particular morning. And it's the religious leaders who influence this crowd to influence Pilate. To release Barabbas instead of Jesus. And it raises the question you know, who who exactly is this Barabbas guy? And we get a little insight in verse 7. Look at verse 7. And among the rebels in prison who had committed murder in the insurrection, there was a man called Barabbas. So Barabbas is a rebel. A rebel against what? A rebel against the government, a rebel against Rome, a rebel against the authority. He's responsible for murder. He has murdered someone in an insurrection. What's an insurrection? Like a revolt, a pushing back, a throwing off. He murdered someone in the process of that. Matthew tells us he was a notorious prisoner. He's known for his criminality. He's a threat to Rome. He's a political revolutionary. Jesus is not. Jesus is not a threat to Rome. Jesus says, my kingdom is of another world. And yet Barabbas who is guilty gets released while Jesus who is innocent and not a threat gets delivered over to be crucified. Another interesting thing to note, Barabbas literally means son of father. Bar means son, Abba means father, so his, he's called, his name means son of father. The son of father is released while the true son of the true father is is delivered over to be crucified. John tells us that Barabbas was a robber. It's the specific term that he's a robber. And Mark 15, 27 tells us that Jesus was crucified between two robbers. So who was that that was supposed to be on the cross between those two robbers? Well, it was supposed to be another robber named Barabbas, who was a criminal, who was a murderer, who was an insurrectionist, who was a real threat. It was supposed to be Barabbas, not Jesus. But Barabbas, the real criminal, gets released and freed while Jesus, the innocent man who's not a threat, gets placed there among the robbers, among the thieves. Jesus goes in his place. Barabbas wakes up one morning and his destiny is death on a cross. And he goes to bed that very night, a free man. And I wonder if he caught that. I wonder if he was there witnessing the, the, the crucifixion of Jesus. I wonder if he caught that that should have been him on that cross. I wonder if it made sense to him what was going on here. I don't know. But I do know that's our story. That's a picture of what Jesus has done for us. You and I deserve to be there because of our sin. Jesus goes there in our place so that we can go free. Listen to how 1 Peter 3:18 says it. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous that He might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit or by the Spirit. Jesus suffered though He was righteous. The righteous suffered so that the unrighteous might go free. Or what the way Peter calls it, might bring us to God. We can be brought to God, reconciled to God, because the righteous suffered for the unrighteous. Jesus is dying in our place. That's why we sang the song earlier. Thank you, Jesus, for the blood. It's a good way of saying it. Jesus died for me in my place. In theology, this is called penal substitution. Why? Because Jesus is dying as our substitute. In my place. He's going for me. He's dying for me. Just like he's dying for Barabbas, the criminal. He's dying for me, the sinner. And it's called penal substitution because he's taking the penalty that I deserve. Barabbas deserved the penalty. Jesus took the penalty in his place. I deserve the penalty for my sin. Jesus took the penalty for me. That's why it's called penal substitution. I read a story this past week about a couple... Okay. Do I need to make a change on my mic or are we good? All right, I'll keep going. I read a story about a couple who went to an Audi car dealership and uh, they took their three-year-old daughter with them and they didn't do a very good job of keeping up with their three-year-old daughter. And while they were talking to the dealer, the three-year-old daughter, uh, started. she found a pebble and started doing her artwork on some of the vehicles and some of the nice vehicles at this Audi dealership. In fact, uh, she did damage to a total of ten of them. And, of course, the car dealership went to the parents and said, <laughs> you know, this is on you. And the parents said, well, it wasn't us who did this. And it actually went to court, and the court did find that the parents had to pay some money for this. And rightly so. We understand this, right? When when something has happened, when something, when a wrong has happened, somebody has to pay for it. When there's a debt, somebody has to pay for it. And when you're a parent of young children, you understand this. I am responsible for them, right? I have boys who like to throw balls around and shoot airsoft guns. And I understand you know, if there's a window that gets broken, somebody's gotta pay for it. And if it's my kids who cause it, I'm on the line for it, right? I'm not, guil- I'm not the one that's guilty. I'm not the one shooting the airsoft gun, right? But at some level, I'm, I'm responsible. I, I have to pay this penalty. And this is, this is, the, this is the gospel. This is the heart of Christianity, and it's crucial we get this. Jesus is going for me, in my place, paying my debt, though he's innocent, and he's doing it so that the sinner can go free. This isn't just an interesting theological discussion. This isn't uh, just an irony to amuse us and make us say, huh, isn't that interesting? This is, this is literally the heart of the gospel and the Christian faith. And if you are particularly interested in studying and learning more, um, I have a resource that I recommend. I put it at the bottom of the sermon notes. The, the book is called In My Place Condemned He Stood by J.I. Packer and Mark Dever. And so if you want to explore this, go a little deeper. It's kind of written at a scholarly level. But for those of you who are interested, I commend it to you. It, it argues that substitution, penal substitution, is the heart of the gospel and the heart of the Christian faith. Here's the point. Practically, you have to identify with Barabbas. You stand condemned because of your guilt. Jesus goes to the cross and dies for you. That's why we sing songs that say things like, Bearing shame and scoffing rude, In my place condemned he stood. Sealed my pardon with his blood. Hallelujah, what a Savior. If you say, Hallelujah, what a Savior, it means you probably get, In my place condemned he stood. You get that. If you don't get that, what does it mean? In my place, condemned, Jesus stood. Do you get that? If you do, you'll say, wow, hallelujah, what a Savior. If you say, I don't really get it, then you you, you need to just really focus on what does it mean? In your place, condemned, Jesus stood. There's another song we sing. Come behold the wondrous mystery, Christ the Lord upon the tree. In the stead of ruined sinners, hangs the Lamb, in victory, do you get that? In the stead of ruined sinners, the word "stead" means in my place. In the place of ruined sinners, hangs the Lamb in victory. If you get that, then you'll say, "Wow, I, I want to come and behold this wondrous mystery." If you don't get it, you'll go. Uh, it just sounds like more Bible talk, biblical talk. Do you get that? Do you stand and wonder? Do you stand and all in my place condemned? He stood. Jesus is innocent, but he, like being treated like a sinner, though he's not, he gets treated like a sinner so that those of us who are sinners can go free. And this brings us to the third mystery or irony. These actions against Jesus are evil, and yet this is God's will and plan. So first of all, let's focus on the actions are evil. Let's consider some of the details here of what happens, the the physical torture that Jesus experiences. The Bible doesn't go into a lot of great detail, so therefore we shouldn't go into a lot of great detail, but we do have to deal with what's there, So what's there? Look at verse 15, having scourged Jesus, the scourging is a Roman form of punishment that's distinct from crucifixion. A person could experience Roman scourging, but not necessarily crucifixion. But even the scourging could kill someone, and often did. The reason why they would scourge them first is because if you just put someone on a cross, they could be there for days upon days upon days upon days. And so the scourging takes a person to the point of death, right up to the point of death, and then they would hang on the cross as a public spectacle. And so it was a brutal form of punishment. William Lane describes it like this. A Roman scourging was a terrifying punishment. The delinquent was stripped, bound to a post or a pillar, or sometimes simply thrown to the ground, and was beaten by a number of guards until his flesh hung in bleeding shreds. The instrument indicated by the Mark and text, the dreaded flagellum, was a scourge consisting of leather thongs plated with several pieces of bone or lead so as to form a chain." No maximum number of strokes was prescribed by Roman law, and men condemned to flagellation frequently collapsed and died from the flogging. There are historical records that that indicate that the scourging would lead to organs being exposed and bone being exposed. So you can see how someone might die from this. Jesus has been scourged when they mock him. So when they mock him, he can barely stand as they put the purple cloak and the crown of thorns. He's he's half dead. We know this because he's unable to carry the cross on his own when it's time to carry the cross. These are evil actions by Rome, and these are evil actions by the religious leaders that led to the scourging and the crucifixion by Rome. And, And next, I want you to see that these people are responsible for their evil actions. They did this, they'll be held accountable And they are morally culpable for what they did to Jesus. For example, listen to Acts chapter 2, verse 23. This is Peter preaching. And he says, This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and you killed by the hands of lawless men. Peter is speaking here to a Jewish audience. He says, you did it. You killed him. You are responsible. Talking to actual people in the audience, you killed him. You did it at the hands of lawless men. You are responsible. You are guilty. It's evil, and men, evil men are responsible for it. And at the exact same time, it is God's will and plan for this to happen. Say, where do you see that? I see it all over the place. Let me just show you a few examples. First of all, listen once again carefully to Acts chapter 2, verse 23. The same verse I read earlier, but listen to this. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. He says it was according to the definite plan of God. Not the general plan of God. The definite plan of God. The way Jesus died happened according to the definite plan plan of God. It also says according to his foreknowledge, which doesn't just mean that he foreknew it. It means he was involved in the details intricately, intimately before they happened. It it happened on God's watch. It happened under his authority. Where do you see that? Listen to John 19 verses 10 and 11, the exchange between Jesus and Pilate. So Pilate said to him, you will not speak to me Do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? Jesus answered him, you would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given you from above. Pilate only has authority to do what he's doing to Jesus in so far as God gives him the authority. This is happening according to God's will. This is happening according to God's plan. And by the way, Jesus has been telling us this all along. He's been telling us this is why he's here to die. He knows it. Mark 10:45 The Son of man did not come to be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. The Old Testament was pointing forward and telling us that this was going to happen. We see the sovereignty of God, the plan of God, and God foretelling us before it happened that it's going to happen. Listen for example to Isaiah chapter 50 verse 6. I gave my back to those who strike and my cheeks to those who pull out the beard. I hid not my face from disgrace. And spitting. And now here's Jesus, the fulfillment of the suffering servant, being spit upon and being struck. Listen to Isaiah 53 6, a verse we know very well. The Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Who was it that laid on Jesus our iniquity? Who was it that laid on Jesus our sin? The Lord has laid on him the iniquity of a soul. Whose definite plan was it for Jesus to go and die in the place of sinners? It was God's plan. So listen to what we're saying. We're saying, not only was Jesus dying as a substitute in my place, not only was he paying a penalty while he was there dying, it's not only a penal substitution, but this is the other huge question we have to ask. Who was it that was inflicting the punishment against Jesus at the cross? And of course, part of the answer is these evil men who were doing these evil things. Of course, that's part of the answer. But if that's the only answer, if we stop there, then listen, this is important. Jesus' death doesn't mean anything for us. If the men are the only ones inflicting punishment against the Son, Jesus' death means little for us. But if it was the Father... If it was according to His definite plan inflicting the pain, inflicting the punishment against the Son for us in our place, then that changes everything. And that's the message of the book. That's the message of the Gospel. That's the message of the Christian faith. It is incredible good news because God was doing this. It pleased Him to crush the Son. The Lord has laid on Him the iniquity of us all. And when you get that, it sends you to your knees in wonder and awe. Why would the Father do this? And the answer is, according to 1 Peter, He does it to bring us to God. He does it to make us sons and daughters of God. He does it to bring us in to the royal family. He does it for our good and for His glory. See the price of our redemption. See the Father's plan unfold. Bringing many sons to glory, grace unmeasured, Love untold. God's innocent son, who is the king, reigns from heaven as the king, willingly left his throne in order to come to earth, to be treated like a sinner, to go to a cross, to die a sinner's death, to take the wrath of God, so that we who actually are criminals, sinners, deserving of the wrath, might go free. And not just go free but actually be adopted in as sons and daughters. And not just any sons and daughters, but sons and daughters of royalty, of the king. Wow. Why? I hope you see the irony. I hope you see the mystery. Not so that you stand amused, but so that you stand in awe and stand in wonder that God has done this. And perhaps today for the first time you've you've never felt it, and maybe you feel it now for the first time. The wonder, the the wow, the the awe. Here's my encouragement to you. Don't stay there. Go to Christ and trust Him for it. Go to Christ and, and be like, identify with Barabbas. Jesus died for me in my place. That's what it means to be saved. That's what it means to become a Christian. That's how you become the son and daughter of God. You recognize you deserve to be there. Jesus went there for you. And you look on Him and trust on Him and believe on Him for you, trusting He did it in your place. And you'll become a child of God. And, and for those of you who know this and you believe it and you've heard it all your lives, but you've sort of lost the wonder of it, my hope for you is, is today you are reinvigorated as you hear and you're reminded to come back and behold this wondrous mystery. Let's pray.